DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha, presents the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults with His Excellency, Archbishop George Lucas. The United States Catholic Catechism for Adults is an adaptation of the Catholic Catechism. It serves as a resource for those who wish to become acquainted with Catholicism. It is an invitation for all the faithful to continue growing in the understanding of Jesus Christ and his saving love for all people. The United States Catholic Catechism for Adults with His Excellency, Archbishop George Lucas. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Chapter 8, The Saving Death and Resurrection of Christ Singing the Lord's Praises with a Challenge At the funeral of Sister Thea Bowman on April 3, 1990, Father John Ford asked, Who was Sister Thea? Many answers were given. One said, She challenged us to our own individuality, yet pleaded for us to be one in Christ. This was her eloquent song. Another called her the springtime in everyone's life. She was praised as the God-gilded voice sent dancing, swaying, and sashaying into our lives. Who was Sister Thea? Born as Bertha J. Bowman in 1937 in Canton, Mississippi, the daughter of a physician, Theon E. Bowman, and a schoolteacher, Mary E. Coleman Bowman, Bertha thrived in a richly textured, extended African-American family. When local schools did not offer Bertha a good education, her mother enrolled her in a school run by the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Bertha converted to Catholicism at age 10, and six years later she became a religious sister in the congregation that taught her. In becoming a sister, she took the name Thea. She became a teacher from 1958 to her death in 1990, first with elementary school students and then with a wider audience. She earned a graduate degree in English literature at the Catholic University in Washington, D.C. But no matter where she was, she carried in her heart and voice the songs, stories, and values of the rich cultural heritage of the African-American community of the rural South. Like a modern version of the singing poets of scripture, the bards of ancient Greece, and the storytellers of Africa, she shared the gospel and the gifts of black Americans with all who would listen. She demonstrated a social conscience on many occasions. She spoke to the U.S. bishops on June 17, 1989, at their meeting at Seton Hall University in South Orange, New Jersey. Suffering from bone cancer, she spoke from a wheelchair. Among the many challenges she presented was one about Catholic schools. I've got to say one more thing. You all ain't going to like this, but that's all right. 
The church has repeatedly asked black folk, what do you want? What can the church do for you? And black folk all over the country are saying, help us to education. We need education. The way out of poverty is education. We can't be church without education because ignorance kills and cripples us. Black people are still asking the church for education. From To Be Black and Catholic, Origins, July 6, 1989. At the conclusion of her speech, received by the bishops as a warm and moving message, she asked the bishops to join her in singing, We Shall Overcome, with their arms joined to bring them closer together. She often said, We do not want to change the theology of the church. We just want to express theology within the roots of our black spiritual culture. As we proceed to reflect on the death and resurrection of Jesus, we find that the compelling story of Sister Thea Bowman shows that she was a witness to the mystery of Christ. She bore her cross courageously and still could sing alleluias from her wheelchair, living the Paschal mystery every day. Nearing the end of her life, she said, let us stretch ourselves Go beyond our comfort zones to unite ourselves with Christ's redemptive work. Let us break bread together. Welcome, Archbishop Lucas. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be with you. Your Excellency, I think this is one of my favorite chapters because we talk about the saving death and resurrection of Christ. It, this, is, this is it, isn't it? I mean, this is the moment that the Incarnation, the reason why it occurred. That's right. We talked in the last chapter about the Incarnation, the mystery of, of Jesus, God, and man. And so that mystery kind of comes to, to fruition. In this mystery, which the Church often refers to as the Paschal Mystery, um, that, that's a, a very common word in one sense in our uh, Catholic language, but often people aren't exactly sure what it is that, that we're referring to. I remember giving a talk one time, and I was talking about the Paschal Mystery, mentioned it about 20 times, and finally somebody put up her hand, and, and she said, well, what is the Paschal Mystery mm -hmm. anyway? So that mm -hmm. was a very good question, and, and uh, this uh, chapter of the Adult Catechism answers that question. And when we refer to the Paschal Mystery, we're, we're referring to the death and resurrection of Christ. Sometimes we say the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, that the ascension mm -hmm. completes the, the mystery. But this is, of course, the, the heart of, of Jesus' saving mission. It becomes very clear in his death and resurrection that God sent his son not just to be with us, uh, not just to give us good example or sort of hang out with us so he could know our life, our problems, our, our struggles, but he's come as our redeemer. And be, Again, referring to what we said in the previous chapter, because Jesus is God and man, he's able to affect our redemption mm -hmm. through the crucifixion and the resurrection. I'm not aware of any of the other prophets that have been lifted up over the centuries in other religions that have suffered and died as Jesus did. Why did he have to suffer? Why did he have to, to go through such an agonizing period for us. It's a great meditation, isn't it? Be mm -hmm. Because it, it was real suffering and real death, and, and that's important for us to know. Again, the, the Son of God willing 
to humiliate himself, to humble himself, I should say, to be humiliated uh, by others and, and to become a victim of human willfulness, we, we might say, that willfulness that's now so, so twisted by the effects of original sin. It was the ultimate act of, of love, the ultimate act of self-giving, offering himself for our sake back to his heavenly Father as a perfect sacrifice, as a, a perfect uh, reparation for the horrible sins of, of humanity in every time and place. Jesus took that all on himself. And because his sufferings were so severe and torture, really, and uh, because the death was so painful, so public, so humiliating, it, it's, we, we can't miss the point of God's love for us. Uh, in Christ Jesus, that, that Jesus is willing to give everything, his life, his dignity, uh, everything so that we might have life mm-hmm. in him. And so that uh, because the innocent one has offered his life for the guilty, we who are guilty of sin can be forgiven of sin and can be healed of our sins through the power of the cross. Mm. I'll be that woman in the audience raising their hand. <laughs> Reparation. Help us to, again, understand what reparation really means. Why, why did he have to offer reparation? Every sin, starting with original sin, is, a, is an act of injustice. It, it takes what God has set up right, in right relationship, and, and uh, twists it, uh, breaks it uh, somehow. So a, a sin is a, is a rupturing of the right relationship that we have with God, with one another, with, with ourselves. And in order for... Uh, real forgiveness and healing to take place. Not only does God have to grant forgiveness, which he does very readily, but the broken pieces have to be put back together, we, we might say. And, and what has been damaged has to, has to be repaired so that, that justice can be restored. Justice in the richest sense of life in God's plan, right relationship. So that, that's the reparation of the cross. In a sense, Jesus making up for the wrong that's been done. Another way of saying it is sort of putting things that, that are wrong right. And mm-hmm. because of the collective sins of humanity, because of my own personal sins, sins of other people, because of the effects of original sin, things had gone very wrong. And uh, we experience this now even after the redemptive act of, of Christ. That power of that redemptive action is ongoing, and we're invited into it and invited to cooperate in it and to allow ourselves to be redeemed in Christ. But we still experience the the brokenness. But our faith tells us that in, in God's plan, the death of Jesus is enough mm-hmm. to make up for all that, if we want to put it that way. Again, it's, a, it's one way of understanding it. It's, our words are a little bit feeble. But Jesus has, in a sense, traded himself for us and uh, did it willingly, lovingly, not because we deserve it and not because we're so lovable, but because we needed a Savior. It was God's intense desire that we be saved. It's so important for us to go back to that last chapter that we discussed about Jesus as true God and true man, because yes, he was true man offering himself, but also true God. God is the one who suffered. Isn't that true? I mean, all of that, that horrible humiliation and just the pain, it was God who suffered that. It's the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the second person of, of the Blessed Trinity. And not, mm-hmm. uh, he's not divided up into parts, one person. Right, it, it's just uh, kind of takes your breath away, yeah. really, if we allow ourselves to think about it, to, to meditate on it. That's why the, the crucifix is such a prominent 
symbol in, in Catholic life. We have it in our homes. Often we wear one around our necks, perhaps, and they're in classrooms on the outside of churches, inside of churches, usually over the altar you know, or next to the altar when we celebrate the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, when the sacrifice of Calvary is represented uh, for uh, for us now in uh, in our time and place, but uh, but we never want to turn away from the cross, and particularly in our devotional life from the crucifix, because it does remind us of this complete self gift of Jesus Christ, and reminds us that it was serious. That it wasn't mm-hmm. a it wasn't just going through the motions. It wasn't a a superficial kind of offering on his part. He gave himself completely. When we talked about reparation, is that the same as expiation, or is that a, something different? It's all related. I, I think, again, we don't divide these things up scientifically. You know, in one of the prefaces for Mass has said over the years that God sees and loves in us what he sees and loves in Christ. And so the Lord allowed himself to be lifted up on the cross, sacrificed on the altar of the cross, lifted up, sense in the face of uh, his heavenly Father, so that in him God would see all of us, that, that we were all being lifted up in him. So he, again, various ways, poetically and otherwise, to, to say this over the centuries, but t- takes our sins upon himself and within himself, really, and th- through his power as the Son of God breaks the power of sin and defeats it on the cross. So on Good Friday of all days, you know, we have so many beautiful hymns and, and readings mm-hmm. and, and reflections that help draw us into the power of this mystery which we can never fully comprehend, but which we get at a very profound level. And of course, as the Lord was preparing his disciples for the fact that he would suffer and die, he was also indicating to them and to us that taking up the cross was going to be a constitutive of being a true disciple of his. Mm-hmm. And again, we understand it. You know, we talk about that ourselves, you know, that we know somebody who's carrying a heavy cross right now or we feel that we have a particular sharing in the cross through through illness or through confusion or through a broken relationship or some disappointment, something. And so Jesus has done something unique and real for our sake in offering himself on the cross, but then he's also opened it up to us so that the sufferings that are part of every human life and the frustrations and the humiliations, all of those things, some great and, and, and some small, that those find their meaning in the crucifixion, mm-hmm. in the cross of Christ. And as we unite ourselves with that, that perfect sacrifice, then we become part of this redeeming act of Jesus, part of this expiation, part of this satisfaction. You know, mm-hmm. All these things that we use, as St. Paul says, we make up in our own bodies, what our own sufferings, what's lacking in the, in the sufferings of Christ, what that means exactly. Again, scientifically, we know we don't measure it exactly, but, but we know we have the opportunity to share both in the being redeemed, but also in the redemptive act of Christ. A meditation found in the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults. Make Holy Week holy. Let us stretch ourselves, going beyond our comfort zones to unite ourselves with Christ's redemptive work. We unite ourselves with Christ's redemptive work when we make peace, when we share the good news that God is in our lives, when we reflect to our brothers and sisters God's healing 
God's forgiveness, God's unconditional love. Let us break bread together. Let us relive the holy and redemptive mystery. Let us do it in memory of him, acknowledging in faith his real presence on our altars. He really died. I mean, he had to suffer death. And he remained dead in the tomb those days. He was dead and, and buried. That's part of the creed. It's a fact worth knowing and repeating. He wasn't going through the motions and it wasn't some kind of a, a charade or didn't just fall into a deep sleep. The death of Christ was real. And so the resurrection of Christ on the third day is a, a tremendous reality and, and something that was never seen before and not repeatable in its unique importance. The one who gave his life willingly on the cross, now risen from the dead. And the, the truth is that Jesus is not dead anymore. He's alive. And that was a truth that dawned in a very powerful and beautiful way on his apostles and disciples on Easter and then on, in the days following. As they, first of all, from the very first witnesses, as many began to kind of hear the rumor, you might say, that, that Jesus was, was alive, but then had the chance to, to see him, to touch him, to eat with him. Just all these very human activities which Jesus had participated in with them were still part of now their association with him, although it was clear to them that this was a, a new life, a glorious life, not just back from the dead, but risen gloriously and living in a new and glorious way. St. Paul said the resurrection is the, the reason for our hope, the reason for our faith, because if he hadn't been raised from the dead, then what's the point? Our faith is in vain, he says. It's true. In a sense, it's, it proves everything that Jesus was promising, everything that he was inviting his disciples, inviting us to believe about him. It proves, most of all, the Eucharist, mm. the gift that Jesus has given to the church to make it possible for us to participate in his holy and living sacrifice in every age and, and in every place. Because he is the Son of God, he is able to continue to offer himself to us in this way in the church. Again, not just remembering what he did. We do remember it, and the remembering is beautiful and it's powerful. Mm -hmm. But that the power of his death and resurrection becomes present for us, Jesus himself becomes personally present to us in the Holy Eucharist. Without his resurrection, we would have the memory, perhaps, maybe we wouldn't by now, but, but we wouldn't have Jesus. And mm -hmm. he wouldn't be available to us because he'd be dead. But he's alive and continues to live through the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. We experience him really personally alive in the scriptures in a certain way, but, but most profoundly in the sacraments and particularly in, in the Holy Eucharist. Chapter 8, The Saving Death and Resurrection of Christ in the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults, makes a point of saying that no one saw the actual resurrection. It, no one knows how it took place, how it, exactly how it occurred, but yet it's the witnesses. It's what they proclaimed. And for, if not almost all of them, died in not wanting to deny the reality in which they encountered. So their eyewitness accounts are very powerful. He, Jesus was seen, risen from the dead by many, many people. 
as you say, I would think most of them, you know, can't know for sure, but most of them were ready to die rather than deny what they had seen. It was such a powerful and life-changing experience to, first of all, have witnessed the death of Jesus. Imagine how they felt then, mm-hmm. how their faith was shaken after having put their faith in Jesus, having listened to him invite them to be part of the kingdom of God. They wanted to be part of that. They wanted to be part of it with him. And then to watch his arrest and torture and crucifixion, we can just imagine. I mean, to think of, to see that happen to anybody that we know would be an awful Mm -hmm. thing, but someone whom they had come to believe was the Savior, the Son of God. But then imagine their joy. Imagine how their faith was confirmed in him when they saw him risen from the dead. And, And such a profound experience that they were willing to accept from him this responsibility to bring the news of the power of his death and resurrection to the ends of the earth, wherever that was. They didn't know where it was. They knew it was a big responsibility. They weren't sure how they were going to carry it out, and the Lord promised that they would receive the Holy Spirit to make Mm -hmm. that possible. But they were ready to do it with the help of the Holy Spirit. They did do it, and many of them gave their lives. And, And in a sense, that seals their witness. The word martyr means witness in a very profound way. So you have to stop and pay attention to somebody who believes something so much that he or she will dedicate uh, their whole life to it, even to the point of giving up their life rather than give up the thing that they claim is true. There's no denying the importance of those eyewitness accounts, both the fact that Jesus was seen and experienced by those who knew it was really he after he was risen from the dead, but then their willingness to to share that good news and, of course, God's gift of the Holy Spirit to make that sharing effective and, and powerful. What would you say to someone who is maybe in an RCA class or a teenager or a parent trying to explain to that teenager who says, I just, I, I just can't accept the resurrection. I just don't understand that. I mean, all the teachings are really good. And I, I like what he had to say, but raised from the dead. But yet that's core, isn't it? We... How do you brace what we did not witness for ourselves? Sure. It would be hard for me to understand why the teachings would be thought to be pretty good if you thought that a person, uh, this Jesus, was teaching that he is the Son of God, and, uh, but that he really wasn't. You know, so I think uh, if we don't accept the resurrection, I'm not sure there's much sense in accepting any of it because mm-hmm. it's all fulfilled in both the death and resurrection of Christ all that he challenges us to know and to understand, but, but particularly, again, that this saving work of his is so personal. So, you know, he invites us into a relationship with him and invites us to assent in faith that he is the Son of God, that he is who, he's, who he says he is. And so the resurrection is, the again, the proof of that. It's uh, not the best word, but it fulfills everything that, that Jesus was inviting us to know about him and about, about the kingdom of God. But it is a matter of faith. It was a matter of faith, I suppose, for the people who saw Jesus. He helped their faith. With St. Thomas, for example, he said, come here and put your finger in the, the nail marks. He wanted mm-hmm. Thomas to know that, without a doubt, that he is risen. And so we don't have that, that benefit. But we have both those original eyewitnesses, and then we have the witness of saints and martyrs and uh, faith-filled people down through the centuries. And it's a reminder to us, you know, that it's both the action of the Holy Spirit and the witness of believers that transmits the faith from one place to another or one generation to another. A prayer. 
found in the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults. Now that we have seen the resurrection of Christ, let us adore the all-holy Lord Jesus, the only sinless one. We bow in worship before your cross, O Christ, and we praise and glorify your resurrection. For you are God, and we have no other, and we magnify your name. All you faithful, come. Let us adore the holy resurrection of Christ. For behold, through the cross, joy has come into the world. Let us always bless the Lord. Let us sing his resurrection. For by enduring for us the pain of the cross, he has crushed death by his death. Part of that witness, could it be said that we could experience ourselves if in prayer, opening up our hearts in faith, he can reveal himself to us? He sure can and does and, and wants to. Again, just as he did after the resurrection, he wants us to be able to encounter him. And that is possible even when at the very beginnings of faith, when faith is, is just uh, stirring, or uh, when people might have questions about all that the church believes and teaches. If we sit quietly and ask Jesus to reveal himself to us, again, sometimes the prayer of the skeptic can be very powerful. You know, if, if you really are there, if, if you really are risen from the dead, give me some indication. That's not a, it's not a bad prayer. And we'll probably come with a, a lightning bolt or, you know, some big voice booming. But uh, back to the, what we said before of the mystery of the incarnation, Jesus is very accessible and accessible to us, particularly in the church. So it's uh, sometimes good, you know, if, if we know that somebody's at least bit interested in the church or in faith in Jesus, we bring them to uh, church with us or maybe bring somebody to adoration. I uh, heard not long ago from a focus missionary about how he had invited one of the students on the campus who wasn't Catholic to come to adoration. And after a little while of quiet, the young man who, who was there for the first time kind of nudged him and said, what is that up there? It's a great question and beautiful opportunity to begin to talk about the presence of the risen Christ in the church, in the sacraments, particularly in, in the Holy Eucharist. So, you know, the Lord's not trying to hide himself or, or be obscure. He, he doesn't want to be at a distance from us at all. So anybody who has the least desire or I should say maybe an incipient desire uh, to, to, uh, to know him, uh, to have an experience of his presence, I think we'll, we'll be able to, to receive that. Why wouldn't the Lord make that possible for them? Amen. Thank you so much, Archbishop Lucas. Thanks, Chris. It's always great to be with you. You've been listening to the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults with His Excellency, Archbishop George Lucas. To learn more about the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults, go to usccb.org, the website for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or download this episode, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults with His Excellency, Archbishop George Lucas.